Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we learned how God's justice was met on the cross of Christ, or what we call and have been referring to as Mercy Hill. And in that sermon, I, we talked a lot about the judgment of God and the wrath of God, which you can imagine was a real crowd pleaser. I mean, people really love to talk about the subjects of God's judgment and God's wrath. But I hope from that teaching, I think the one thing I hope that we pulled away with is this, is that God himself is, is righteous and he is just, which means he can't just, uh, he, can't, he, he must always judge sin and judge the sinner. He, he must always do these things. He can't, just, uh, he can't just overlook sin. He can't just forget about it. He can't even forgive sin without restitution being made for the offense. If he was to do so, if God was to be flippant with sin and just let it rage on, he, he would cease to be just, he would cease to be righteous, and therefore he would cease to be God. Now, that's what we had talked about before, but here's what I want you to know. I understand that studying about the wrath and, and, and the justice of God is not people's favorite. It's not easy to hear, and I got to tell you, it's not easy to teach either. It's very difficult, but it is absolutely necessary. Here's why. We will never fully understand God's passion for us unless we fully understand God's passion for justice. Let, let, me, let me quote J.R. White uh, <coughs> here. He says, God's love shines with its full and proper glory only when it is seen in its biblical context. That is against the backdrop of God's holiness and hatred of sin. So we can't understand how much he loves us until we understand uh, equally how much he loves justice because it is those two things that he must reconcile on the cross of Jesus Christ. Excuse me. <coughs> now, now that we understand the justice of God and how it was met on the cross, and if you didn't listen to that sermon, go back and listen to it. Now we can go on and we can begin to see how God's love for us was demonstrated on Mercy Hill. But before we begin to talk about God's love, I think it's important for us to just generally talk about love. Because I think most people growing up believe that they just know what true love is automatically. Many people believe and have even written, written on the fact, they believe the fact, is that uh, true love is not something that you learn, it's just something that you have. In other words, it's intrinsically learned. It's just something that, that everybody knows what it is. And this is why, and this is actually evident in the response of parents to their kids when, when their daughter or son comes up to them and says, Mom, Dad, I've been you know, wrestling with my emotions and feelings about this young girl or boy of the opposite sex, and, and, and I need, how did you know, or how, how does one know if they love somebody or not? And they're the mom and dad and all of their wisdom and all of their knowledge and experience look at each other with that little coy look, and, and, and they look at each other, and they put their arm around their child and say, honey, you just know. You just know, right? Which is probably of no help whatsoever to that young person. And nor do I believe is probably theologically and biblically correct. In fact, the Apostle John teaches us that if it had not been for God sending his son on the cross, we would not know what true love is. Listen to what he says in 1 John 3.16. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. In chapter 4 and verse 10, he says again, he says, In this the love of God was manifest, that is made evident among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live 
through him. John is saying, you think you know what true love is? You don't have a clue what it is until you understand how God demonstrated true love by sending his only son to die for you and for me on a cross, on Mercy Hill. And so what we want to do is we want to talk about that love this morning, much better than wrath and judgment, amen? All right, that is a real crowd pleaser, by the way, uh, talking about his love. But at the same time, so what we want to do, we want to look in Romans 5, 6 through 8, and we want to see just what kind of love God demonstrated by sending his son on the cross. Three things we see. First of all, we see that it was a personal love, a personal love. Now, now go down to verse 8, if you will. There in verse 8, you'll, see, you'll find this phrase, but God shows his love for us. But God shows his love for us. This is very personal. This is God taking action directly from him to us. Now, we understand it's Jesus Christ who laid his life down. It was, life who, it was Jesus Christ whom the wrath of God poured down on. But it was God's plan to send his only son that he initiated to send for us. This is immensely and deeply personal, which is completely different than the way that Eastern religions view God. They believe that God is transcendent. That means that he's way far, a million miles away. You can't even get close to him, that he's, that he's completely impersonal. In fact, they teach that we can know things about God, but we cannot actually know God in a personal way. But this scripture and scriptures throughout the, the rest of the New Testament and Old Testament showed that there's something completely different than that, that God, in fact, is personal. John, once again, in chapter 17, verse 3, says this, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The word know there is a Greek word that speaks of experience. And what he's saying is to, to, to have eternal life goes hand in hand with having a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. You want to know if you have eternal life? Have a personal relationship with God. No personal relationship? Guess what? No eternal life. And so what we find here is that God initiated that personal relationship with us by what? Demonstrating a very personal love to us. John Stott, in his book, he, he comes out and he challenges us to see how personal God's love was toward us when he wrote these words. Listen very carefully. He said, if God had sent a man to us as he had sent the prophets of Israel, we would have been grateful. If he had sent an angel as he did to Mary at the annunciation of Jesus' birth, he says, we would have counted it a great privilege. Yet in either case, he would have sent a third party, since men and angels are creatures of his making. But in sending his own son, eternally begotten from his own being, he was not sending a creature, a third party, but he was sending himself. The logic of this is inescapable. How could the Father's love have been demonstrated any other way than, than, than him sending somebody else except for himself? He had to send himself. This is immensely personal, which teaches us, I think, an important principle, and that is this, that it, an essential part of demonstrating personal love to one another requires not only giving, but giving of oneself. 
Men, I don't know what you got for your wives, but if you decided to go all out today, not trying to set you up for failure, but if you decided to go out today and you said, honey, for Mother's Day, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you out. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to pick you up in a limo. We're going to go ahead and we're going to uh, go out to eat. Some guys are already cringing. They're like, I, I, I got you this candy bar, right? And so uh, we're going to take you out to dinner. Then we're going to go to a movie and everything. That's if you're not too Baptist. And then, uh, and then we're going to go to a movie. And then we might even go you know, dance a little bit if you're not Baptist at all. And then you were going to go dance. And then we're going to go out and we're just going to you know, take a walk on the beach. And then the, the, the limo shows up and there's flowers on the seat, right? And, and, and she gets in and, and, and all of a sudden he starts driving to the restaurant and you're not there. And then takes her to the movies and you're not there and takes her to dancing. You're not there. And then you text, hey, I hope you had a great time. I don't think, at least in my house, I don't think that would go over well. Now, I realize after telling that illustration, some wives might be, no, that sounds actually really good the way that you told it. But the point is that there's kind of a lack of this personal demonstration. There's, there's giving, but there's not giving of self. It's the giving of self that demonstrates a personal, intimate love, personal love with someone. Let me give you another illustration from my own life. And, and it's cool because I mess up on so many things, so I have so much material to help you with. And and so my wife, um, I, I don't think it's appropriate to tell, talk about women's age. I, don't, I grew up with that, unless it helps me in a sermon illustration. And so my wife turned 40 uh, just a little bit ago. And uh, when she turned 40, I want to do something kind of really fun for her, really neat for her. And uh, so I decided, now my wife, you need to understand this about her. Um, she is very frugal about everything. But when it comes to this one thing, she's like, yeah, come on, let's do this. She loves cruises. Okay, that's what she loves to be able to do. And there's a reason for that, because when she goes on a cruise, she's off. Does that make sense? In other words, she doesn't have to clean, she doesn't have to cook, she doesn't have to make a bed, she doesn't have to do anything. So she feels like, hey, this is, I mean, they'll even cut your kids, you know, you know, food, which is a little bit awkward for some of her oldest, but, 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 but they'll do all of these things. So this is what my, so I thought to myself, I'm going to send my wife on a cruise, and I'm going to see if her sisters can go with her, and her mom can go with her, and they'll go, they'll just have a great time, I'll go ahead and watch the kiddos for the weekend, we'll send them out for a three-night cruise, well, it didn't really work out, her sisters kind of had some other plans and some other things going on, but her mom could go, so I went ahead and purchased the tickets for her and her mom, and, and, and then the day came of her birthday, and I had all the kids, and everybody gathered together, and I basically sat there and said, okay, I've got a great surprise for you, now, you need to understand that I already thought through how this was going to go down beforehand. And the way that I thought was going to go down is that there was going to be rejoicing and high-fiving and that there was going to be, my wife is going to rise up and call me blessed is what I thought was going to happen. She'd be tweeting, and she doesn't tweet, she'd be texting going, my husband's the greatest. And, and I mean, I was, always, I was already basking in premature glory, really. And so, but, but when, I, when I announced it, everything I thought would happen happened just the opposite way. There was wailing and gnashing of teeth and children throwing themselves on the ground. And, and the older ones just kind of stiff-lipped, just kind of looking out. And I, and I realized these kids, first of all, for many of them, I don't know what they're upset at, that mom's going away without them or that they have to spend the weekend with me. And I turned to my wife, and my wife's trying to console these children. It's okay. It's going to be all right. We're going to get through this. And I'm sitting there going... You should be, what's wrong with this? And I begin to keep, and you men, you know how you do? You, wanna, you want the person that you do something with to like it. And you're like, honey, don't you like this? Yes, baby, it's very, very sweet of you. But I know that tone. That is not, that's not excitement. That's not real. There's something, do, do, are you really glad? Oh, yes, it's very nice of you. Very, very considerate. A few days later, finally, I, I sit down and talk with her. I go, I just don't understand. It doesn't seem like you're excited at all. She goes, simply put, Mike, she goes, I love it. Would have been great. Great with my mom, says all that. 
but I really just want to be with you, just with you. I know, it, I, I was surprised as well. Um, <laughs> but she goes, I just want to be with you. And it brings back that principle, once again. If you're in a personal relationship with somebody, the way for that thing to be able to grow is, yes, to be able to give and to give and to give, but it can't be just giving of stuff. It has to be the giving of oneself. And this is what Jesus Christ has done. When God sent his only son, he sent himself as a demonstration of his love. You know, I was thinking about this last week, how many people come on a weekly basis and, and, and go to church throughout the, the United States. And many people still coming and not having a personal relationship with God, but just taking part in some type of religion. Just coming and just sitting there going, well, we got to get to church. Why? Because we got to mark the box. We, we got to give because we got to mark the box. We got to serve somewhere because we have to mark the box. And there's no seemingly any joy in it whatsoever. I got to tell you this. Coming to church, hearing me preach anyway, but to hear me preach, to, 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 to try to pray, to read Bible, to give, and to be able to serve, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, I can't think of anything else more depressing. But if you know Christ in an intimate, personal way, and the way that you're communing with him, and the way that you're having a relationship is through your prayer, and through your giving, and through your serving, and those things, then it begins to make sense. And so what I would say today is, listen, if you want a personal relationship with God, you seek him, but know first that he initiated this personal relationship with you by personally sending and giving of his own son for you. He initiated it. And so we see this in the word of God, that his love was a personal love. Secondly, we see that it was a costly love. Now twice, both in verse 6 and verse 8, Paul tells us, says to us, look at that, that Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. In this sentence, or in these two sentences, what he's describing is just what this love that God extended to us and initiated to us, what it ultimately cost him. There's, a, there's an old saying, and when I say him, I'm really speaking of both God the Son and God the Father. It was costly to both. Now, there's a saying, it's not found in Scripture, but I think the principle is true, and that is this, is that the depth of one's love is directly proportional to one's willingness to sacrifice. Would you, would you agree? In other words, the more you love someone, the more you're willing to sacrifice. And the more you're willing to sacrifice, the greater your love is for that individual. Would, would you kind of agree with that? I, I believe that is true. And so when Jesus comes and he lays his life down and God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to give as an act of love for us, he was giving what? The ultimate act of love. The ultimate sacrifice, demonstrating the ultimate love that he has for you and I. It cost him everything. It cost the Father everything. What did it cost Christ? Let me just go over a few things with you very quickly. First of all, it cost him his humility. It cost him his humility. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Now, I preached through Philippians sometime back, but, and I'm not going to unpack all of this, but, but, but listen to it very carefully. He says, though he, speaking of Jesus when he was in heaven, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So we see that humility in steps, just from heaven to earth, to becoming a man, to becoming a servant, to obedience even by dying on the cross. This is his humiliation that he's doing. Why? As an act of love. Stop and think about it for a moment. Leaving eternal glory as God to come here as a man to experience poverty, to experience pain, hunger, thirst, and sorrow. Going from having no limits in rights and power from eternity's past to now willfully laying them aside for a time and taking on those limitations for you and for me. This is his humiliation. He lived in a place of eternal bliss and he became a man of many sorrows. Why? Because he loved you. Because he loved you. Here's the third aspect of what, or second aspect that cost him, that demonstrated his cost, is that it cost him his purity. I don't think we often think about this, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might, be, might become the righteousness of God. Oftentimes we talk in terms of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to pay for our sins, but we forget that it's more than he just died to pay for sins. He actually became sin. Let that sink in just for a minute. This is Jesus who never knew sin. In fact, it's what he hates the most. There's nothing more than sin than he hates. In fact, there are some tough passages that say that he not only hates sin, but he hates sinners. And then we have other passages of scriptures that say that he loves sinners. So you have this dichotomy, and what it's explaining is it's demonstrating that, that tension of his justice and his love that sometimes we have a hard time kind of reconciling and bringing together. But what he does is he, 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 he's, he, he hates sin, but yet he becomes the very thing that he hated. Remember, born of a virgin, which means that he wasn't born with a sin nature. He was obedient in every law and command that God had given. He had fulfilled the law in perfect obedience. Then in one moment on the cross, all that that he hated, that he knew nothing of, he became that very thing. There's a wonderful illustration by William Farley that he gives in his book, and he provides this story about a British officer who was captured in Japan during World War II. And in it, he was a man that had a great deal of knowledge and secrets of the British intelligence. And these men began to do everything they could and torture him in every imaginable way to be able to try to get information from him. And they beat him, and they starved him, and they, 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 they tried to freeze him out. They did everything they possibly could, but he would not speak. Until finally they found out from one of his cellmates that the one thing that he hated was dirt and filth. He couldn't stand being dirty. So what they did was they filled up a, 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 a pit full of human excrement. And they threw him into the pit all the way up to his neck. And immediately he began to lose his mind. Immediately he began to go crazy. And he began to tell every secret imaginable. And as awful as that is, as bad as that is, is nothing compared to the agony that Jesus Christ endured for you and for me while, we, but while being saturated with the sins of the world. Not even close. So we see this. We see it cost him his humility. It cost him his purity. And finally, it cost him his fellowship. This is the greatest cost of all. His love for us cost him the fellowship of his father, at least for a period of time while on that cross. Jesus had existed, remember, with the Father, with Father God, in perpetual harmony and love for all eternity. But when he became sin, God abandoned him. 
That relationship was now fractured and it is broken just as it is for every sinner and a holy God. It was fractured at that moment. And this is why this is why Jesus calls out when he's on the cross right before he dies, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had never known being separated from fellowship with the Father, but because of his sin and willingness to take it on, that's the sacrifice that he was making to reconcile you and me with him. And so he calls out. And this is, this is why Jesus experiences what he experiences the night before the cross. Remember the night before the cross in the garden? The Bible says that he began to sweat drops of blood. Do you remember this part? And the reason for that is, is the medical world tells us that it's possible to be under so much anguish and so much stress that physically your capillaries around your brow begin to burst. And as they begin to burst and bleed, they were mixed with water and they begin to pour down his face. And this is the stress he's on. And so uh, commentators all the time are trying to figure out why so much stress? And some will say, well, it's probably because of the physical suffering he's going to face. Others say it's because he's going to become sin. And that might in part be it. But you know what the greatest part of it is? Is the fact that he knew that for the first time he would be separated from his father, from his heavenly father. That's what caused so much turmoil. That's what caused so much angst for him. And it's not only for Jesus Christ. Look, look, at this point, it's at this point that sin divided God from God for the first time. And it wasn't just pain for the son, it was pain for the father. Don't, don't lose sight of that. Remember, Jesus was the apple of his eye. Uh, Jesus said uh, publicly for, for, from a sky, he bellows out at Jesus' um, baptism. He says, this is my son from whom I am well pleased. Obey him. Do what it is that he tells him to do. He loves the son, but yet what does he do? He sends his only son to die on the cross. Now, it's Mother's Day, and I know your mamas, and I know how protective you are. It's interesting to see, Larissa, when Mama Bear comes out. You guys know what, I'm, you know what Mama Bear is? My wife is so pleasant, so wonderful, but approach her when the kids are around and nobody else is, and baby, it's on, right? I mean, it's, she, she's pumping gas. True story, more than once, she's pumping gas. Kids are in the car. Somebody comes up. I think they were asking for money. Here's my wife. Get back. Get back right now. I'm telling you. I'm warning you now. Get back, right? And you're sitting there going, that's kind of weird. That's mama bear, man. That's protection, right? And so what do moms often do? Moms know that they would take on the very pain of their child. Dads, you know it as well. You would rather suffer than seeing your child suffer. Yet God loved you so much. He was willing to send his only son to allow him to suffer because of his love for you and for me. Author says the son suffers dying and the father suffers the death of his son. The grief of the father here is just as important as the death of the son. The fatherlessness of the son is matched by the sonlessness of his father. This is costly, costly stuff. You know, I, um, when I was just a little boy, my brother was about to get married. I was several years younger than, than he was. And I remember going to the jewelry store and, uh, and he was going to pick out a ring. And that's when I first, for the very first time, heard about this notion that you're supposed to use three months of your salary to buy that ring. And at 12 years old, I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I had ever heard. Twelve, three months of your salary? And I remember sitting there going, really? Are you sure she's worth it? Three months? I was thinking maybe one. You know, that's it. And I just couldn't understand it as a young man at all. And then I met Larissa. And when I met Larissa, and you know when you met that one, three months wasn't enough. 
You wanted to do far more. In fact, with me, three months was not very much at all. Uh, but, but, you, but, but there was a part that says, this, this sacrifice pales in comparison. I'm willing to be able to give this up. Why? Because of the value and the love that you have for that person. You remember what I said in the beginning of this little point? Is that the depth of your love is directly proportional to your willingness to sacrifice? Then what does it mean about God's love for you? When Jesus was willing to have him pay of his, it cost him his humility. It cost him his purity. And it cost him his fellowship. If he were to suffer in such a way, how much does he love you? One of the reasons I want to drive this point home is because I meet with people almost every week who sit back and go, I don't feel loved. And sometimes it's just what they feel and sometimes it's not reality but sometimes it's, it's because of a broken relationship or because of a rebellious child and they're hurting because they don't have that person uh, affectionate towards them and love towards them. But as a believer in Jesus Christ or even as someone who's loved, who would sit back and you would say, hey, guess what? I'm not loved. It's completely contrary to everything that the scriptures are about from Genesis to the book of Revelation. You were loved so more purely, more fully than you can ever imagine. Let me say this. You say, Mike, why are you, somebody asked me a while back, why do you do so much doctrine? Why do you do so much theology? Why don't you just give me something practical? I can guarantee you this morning and today, there's somebody here who is feeling unloved and they're sitting there going, there he is with the Bible again. But don't you understand? It's unpacking the reality of the cross and the truths of the cross and understanding how God and Christ sacrificed us in such a costly way that we begin to finally understand how fully and purely loved we are. That's why we teach it. That's what the word of God would have us to ultimately do. So we have two things. First of all, we see that it's a personal love. Second, we see that it's a costly love. And finally, we see that it is a uh, profound love, a profound love. Look at verse 7 just for a moment, and we're, we're almost done. Verse 7, he says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, there are commentators, they disagree on this. Just going to let you know, some would suggest that there should be no distinction between the righteous person in the first part of the sentence and, and the good person in the second part of the sentence. It's just kind of one and the same. But then there are others like John Stott that does see a distinction. And I believe through the language itself, there is a slight distinction. For example, when it talks about, when it says this, for one will scarcely die for a righteous man. I believe what they're talking about is somebody who is self-righteous. Yeah, outwardly, they seem to be doing all the right thing, but they're kind of full of it. This is what I call like a righteous jerk, right? He's really, really good, but he's a real jerk about it, okay? And he says, look, somebody would scarcely die for a jerky righteous man. Agreed? Probably no, but he doesn't say it's impossible. He says that it's very scarce and very unlikely, but still possible. Then he says, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even die. Now, that is, that is somebody who is warm, somebody who is good, somebody who does good things on the outside. This is what we call one of those good, you think of them and automatically you smile. It's like Nick. See somebody, I look at some of you already. Yeah, Nick, we, we love him. He's awesome. Yeah, he's that, he's that good kind. He says, you know what? Here, he says, perhaps a good person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare even to die. Maybe somebody would. We see that possibility a little bit more. But then he takes that and he separates it. And look at what he says next. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What he's saying is this love is unusual. This love is uncommon. This love is profound. We can understand why people might, for those righteous people in their own ways, we might see people, but nobody is going to die for this person. And then he describes what this person is like. In the beginning of verse 6, he says that he's weak, meaning that he has no ability to make himself right before God. He says that he is ungodly, which means he's about everything opposite of God. And then then in verse 10, he calls them the enemies of God. Look, nobody wants to die for an enemy. That is not normal in the world in which we live, those who oppose us. So you see what he's saying. This over here, very unlikely but possible. Over here, maybe somebody would, but nobody in this world is going to die for somebody who is completely and utterly opposed to them. But it's exactly, precisely what Jesus Christ did. He died for all those who hated him, who wanted to kill him, who rebelled against him, and wanted nothing to do with him. That's the kind of love that he showed by dying for them. This last week, um, or actually it was just yesterday, I was sitting at a... um, a stoplight. And uh, I don't know about you, but 200 is getting a little scary for me. All right. It's just getting a little scary. When it takes me 10 minutes to cross the street, uh, something's wrong. Right. And so we're, we're, we're driving up the street. And, and so you got, you got 200 and then you got all the side roads like that, that run all the way down to the beach. Well, when I'm in one of those side roads or I'm here and I want to turn onto one of the side roads, I don't turn. I give it kind of like a one Mississippi before I take off. Right. Because how many times have you been sitting there and you're about to go and boom, big truck goes by. Right. So I'm sitting there at the table, and I'm about to turn on Amelia Concourse. You guys know where Northampton is, right? Uh, well, I don't live there. And so, um, so anyway, and so we're about to, about to move over to the, to, to the left, and I'm about to, not that there's anything wrong with that, all right? Just, shoot, see, now I understand why I get emails. All right, so anyway, nothing wrong with that. But, but I'm about to turn left on the road, and, 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 and I, made, I made the mistake, I admit it. The light turned yellow, so I came to a stop. I know that's my bad. I know yellow means gun that baby and get through the light as fast as you can, but it was my mistake because I I came to a complete stop, and the guy behind me lays on the horn. So I sat there very composed, dying inside, but very composed outwardly, and I thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to let the next light turn green, and I'm not moving anywhere, and I'm going to let him wait just for a moment. Why? That's what a jerk deserves. So I'm just going to give it to him, exactly what he deserves. So I was sitting there, and then all of a sudden, almost instantly, this section of Scripture, this profound love began to cross through my mind. And I began to kind of sit there, and I just felt no, no audible voice, but just within my heart, the, the work of the Holy Spirit moving, going, see, that's common. That's common. The type of love that I, that, that I give is uncommon. It's profound it's unusual it's not it's not like see because in the way that we show love did you notice that there's a real selfish aspect of that we love each other and our spouse because we get they do something for us we get something from that our children we we get a fulfillment from that are y'all tracking with me you don't get anything out of loving an enemy that's why this is so unbelievably profound so i know you want to know how the rest of the story ends because of the conviction of God, I went ahead, and I was like, okay, I'm going to move immediately. I, it barely turned green, and he was already laying on the horn, which gave me second thought to what I needed to be able to do at that point. 
But I did go ahead and I pulled through as quickly as I could and I moved to the side and he went buzzing by, giving me the number one, you know, sign that we all have come to love and cherish, right? Going by and he goes by. But, but, but you understand the idea is that Jesus Christ in the same exact way, guys, please don't, please understand this love is extraordinary and profound because not a one of us even wanted his love, cared to be loved. We hated him. If we lived during the time of him, we'd be the very first ones that would be counting, crucify him, crucify, crucify him. If we were Romans at the time, we'd be the ones that would be nailing him to the cross. Don't understand. But yet in the midst of that love, he said, I love you in such a profound way. I'm going to show you mercy and grace as much as you love me. That is unusual. I had one, one more quote by John Stott. He said, the value of a love gift is assessed by what it cost the giver and by the degree to which the recipient may be held to deserve it. Jesus Christ sacrificed everything for people who deserve nothing. That's mercy. That's what was accomplished on Mercy Hill. God in his faithfulness and in his justice made sure that justice was met by pouring out the wrath of God that was meant towards us He who knew no sin became sin. Our sin was placed on him. The wrath of God burned on him. And the great exchange is that he then imputed his righteousness. He gave his righteousness over to us. What an amazing deal and what an act of God. If you've never experienced that, I I want to encourage you to do so this morning. Let's pray. Nick's coming right now and we're about to sing. Here's what I want you to do.